0: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
1: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus.
2: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Before our guest joins us, just really quickly, if you're listening to this podcast through our website, There's a better way. Now, if you're not a veteran Meister fan, then you may not know about the other ways that you can listen to Mountain Meister. There are plenty of podcast apps out there which will make listening to Mountain Meister so much easier. We would highly recommend listening on either Stitcher or SoundCloud or the podcast app, which you can get on your iPhone. So check out those. There are links to them on our website. Now, let's welcome our guest. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to the show. This is Ben. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today, we welcome Sarah Hendrickson. Sarah is an American ski jumper, 2013 world champion, and a member of the Visa team. Sarah was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, and at her current age of 19, she has 13 World Cup wins in total. On January 22nd, 2014, she was named one of three women to make the U.S. Olympic ski jumping team, that would compete at the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Sarah Hendrickson was the first woman ever to leave a ski jump in the women's ski jumping event in the Olympics.
0: Congratulations, Sarah, and welcome to Mountain Meister.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I always love it when our athletes have their own Wikipedia page because then I can do some serious creeping and see what's been going on with you and what what the world thinks of you. And there was one statistic which most people probably wouldn't think to look in your Wikipedia page, but I saw that you're five foot four inches tall and you weigh around a ninety nine nice pounds.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: ninety nine pounds. Oh wow,
2: maybe even shy of five four and. <laughs> range about 95 to 100 pounds.
0: So I did a little more digging, and I saw one of your arch rivals from Japan. Her name is Sarah as well. <laughs> Takanaski, I think is how you say it. She's 17 years old. She's 5 feet tall. She's also 99 pounds.
2: Yeah, Sarah Takanashi. She's, she's a tiny one, too. She's shorter than me. I feel <laughs> tall when I stand up against her, but we weigh about the same, and uh, she is an amazing athlete.
0: So... I don't think that that's just some sort of coincidence. Is there some advantage of being short and light in uh, ski jumping?
2: You know, typically um, on the on the men's side of the field, they're tall and skinny. You hmm. want um, as much surface area as possible, but with the least amount of weight. Because if you think, you know, weight gravity pulls you down. If you weigh more, um, you get a little bit more in run speed. If you weigh more, but it's not. It doesn't make up for the, the weight that will pull you down when you're in the air. So it's kind of weird that we're shorter, but, you know, that's that's kind of been the general body type for the girls section. Lindsay Van, my teammate, she's 5'2", I think. And, um, yeah, she's world champion 2009. So it kind of is the common theme, um, I think being lighter is more desirable for sure. Um, But the height just kind of, you know, rolled into play. The girl that won the gold medal this year um, is pretty tall, but pretty light um, for her height. So sometimes you can make it work with the technique that you have, but uh, it's kind of ironic that we're both so small.
1: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, Sarah, Russell and I are actually at really interesting stages in our lives right now. I see professional athletes on TV and – right now they're starting to be younger than me and i saw russell get really scared before the interview and he he looked at me and he said she was born in 1994 and this this glimpse of fear flashes across his eyes and he's thinking oh my god i'm getting old are you young, are you younger than most of your competitors
2: um you know i i was pretty young when i started traveling internationally and um ski jumping is kind of crazy it's a really really technical sport kind of like golf um we compare it to golf in, in a lot of areas but um so you can master the technique really early if your brain is you know smart and you figure out the details um strength is really important as well but it's definitely more of a technique sport so y- if you figure that out at the age of 16 you can excel quite quickly mm-hmm. and um, uh, do really well at the World Cup level. But then also, you know, there's 35 year old guys, there's a 40 year old guy that won silver this year in Sochi. And um, so it's it's really weird in that dynamic. It, you can do well at a young age, but you can also continue to do it for a long time.
0: Do you golf as well?
2: I don't golf. Um, I had a family friend that wanted me to get into golfing really badly. And I tried it for a few years. But you know, I I just like the acceleration of uh, going fast and flying far. It's a little bit more exciting. No offense to golfers. <laughs>
1: well, you just need a bigger driver. I think that's <laughs> the problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's less injuries, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I don't know. Tigers <laughs> Tiger, have Tiger like, no a ton of surgeries. Yeah. I know you, we'll get into some of your injuries that you've had, but yeah. you never know with the golfers. So just for our listeners, so they're
1: aware, uh, we did speak to Nick Farrell, who's also a world-class ski jumper uh, for the Americans. That's episode number 30. Check it out if you haven't heard it yet. Nick kind of walks us through what's going on when they're leaving the jump and, you know, Nick's flying 200 football fields. 200 football fields. Not that many. (laughs) Two football fields. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of football fields. And then for Sarah's interview today, we're going to focus more on her experiences. And then the remarkable point that the sport is in right now. This has got to be so exciting. First year in the Olympics. Have you just seen an influx of popularity, Sarah, um, into the sport of ski jumping?
2: Um. It's been uh, it's been interesting. Uh, we had got a ton of media coverage and a bunch of sponsors jumped on board with us when they heard about ski jumping and how women's ski jumping hasn't been included and a lot of people had no idea. They always saw men ski jumping in the Olympics, but you know, they just never really thought about it when they never watched the girls compete. So we had a lot of interest leading up to Sochi and that was awesome. It was really exciting. People you know, learning about a story, following us, supporting us and we had never had that before, so it was really is it was, it was great. In terms of, you know, younger kids getting started, it hasn't been super popular, but we have had some young girls um that have been interested, which is really good. Our next focus is um, raising the next generation and you know, looking forward to Korea in the next four years and raising the next team of Olympians so that the U.S. can walk away with the medal this, this next time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. How did you get started uh, ski jumping?
2: So I started um, at the age of seven. I was born and raised in Park City. I was born in Salt Lake, but lived in Park City my whole life. So I started skiing at the age of two. Both my parents skied, my older brother, three years older than me, also skied, and, uh, you know, that was just the weekend activity. And then my brother got involved with ski jumping when he was eight uh, through an after-school program. They just started recruiting some kids, and he wanted to try it. And then um, I look up to my older brother a lot, so I kind of got sick of watching him and was like, all right, you know what? (laughs) I want to try this. I'm sick of sitting in the car with my mom waiting for him to get out of practice, so... Um, You know, I tried it one year. Ironically, it was the year of the Olympics in 2002, right here in Park City. And (laughs) uh, I tried it, and I just loved it. And it was so unique. I remember walking from my house up to the Utah Olympic Park to watch the men's ski jump. And and I just thought it was so beautiful and such a unique sport. It's so thrilling. And um, honestly, I haven't looked back since. I've had so many memories and so many opportunities traveling the world and meeting so many cool people. It's just an amazing sport.
0: So did they have the whole infrastructure for ski jumping in park city set up before the Olympics or was, is that almost a new thing for the area?
2: Um, They did have um, ski jumps there before the Olympics, but they renovated them before, the 2002 event. So they built this amazing new facility and, you know, it was really important for them to keep the legacy uh, alive. Um, Basically I'm the result of the 2002 Olympics, which is really cool to say because it's important to keep the programs going and to keep kids involved in the sports. Unfortunately, if you look at Sochi, you know, you don't really think that's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen to all those buildings and, Hmm event structures that were built because um, they're not keeping the legacy going. So Park City and Salt Lake did a great job in keeping everything up to date. And I have these world-class facilities right in my backyard.
1: That would be a waste for Sochi not to utilize that $50 billion that they spent. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, You could say waste.
0: (laughs) So There's this thing that I was thinking about the other day, which actually relates really well to this, and it's the difference between people being in the right place at the right time, if that's a real thing or not, or if it actually is something that seems like it happened, but they're just, they're smart, they were thinking about it the right way for you, so you were about seven for the Park City Olympics, you had... The biggest stage of ski jumping in your backyard at the perfect time for you to start training, and then you're nineteen years old, women's ski jumping for the Olympics comes out, and you're basically in your prime I mean you've won world championships, everything's going great. Do you feel pretty fortunate that you had all these stars look like they lined up, or do you think that it's did a it, result of it's a result, of- yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. Very fortunate. Um, I'm really thankful that my parents raised my brother and I in such an amazing place. Park City has so many opportunities, um, for kids to just get involved in sport. And I really believe sports changes people's lives. I mean, I, I used to be a shy seven year old when I started jumping and, um, you know, through sport and traveling and meeting new people and media, it's changed me completely and for the better, for sure. So, Um, I'm really thankful for everything that's aligned and the clubs and the coaches and the volunteers and everybody that's helped me get to where I am today. I mean, they say that it takes, you know, it takes a village to raise an Olympian or a champion. And, you know, that's 100 percent true. You can't do it alone. You have to have as many supporters as possible. And I'm fortunate enough to say that I have had that behind me 100 percent.
1: At nineteen years old, I mean, we're we're talking about all of this stuff. You don't have a very typical path. I think it's pretty fair to say. Do you ever look back on that and wish that you had a, a more typical path, or are you embracing what you have?
2: Definitely embracing what I have. I mean, the memories and everything that's come along with ski jumping is, you know, one of a kind. I missed events in high school that would have been fun to attend, you know, dances or whatever. And I played soccer. I had to give that up, um, which was a little bit hard, but it's, it's an insane life. And I, I love it every single day. I fall in love with ski jumping more and more each time I do it. So, um, I definitely missed out on the typical, you know, first year of college where my friends were out this year and, you know, half of me wish I was doing the same, but I have to take it back and be thankful for what I have because it really is super unique and has taught me so many things.
1: Let's move on to what you were doing with all of your time, and the majority of that is probably training. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the training. When we spoke to Nick Farrell about, let's start with the mental side, he said that he uses a it's a special military leadership combat art, and it's called Military Arnis, which sounded fantastic, also very intimidating. Um, what sort of mental preparation do you do?
2: Um, you know, honestly, nothing specific. Mm. Um, for me, I guess I'm a pretty intense and serious person. I'm really dedicated in everything I do. So the focus is a lot on the, the weight training and the physical training. Mm-hmm. And then um, I've learned that over the years, The more fun you have and the more relaxed you stay and the less pressure you put on yourself, you'll have better results. I mean, that's what worked for me. It's different for everybody. But, um, you know, if you go out there and you're just having a bum day, it's it's not going to be beneficial. So I go out, I, I try and have a clear head and remember that this is what I love to do. If I'm not having fun, then it's not worth it. So that's why i show up for ski jumping that's why the u.s team is the strongest in the world on the women's side it's because we never had the media we never had the sponsors or the money or anything so we showed up to the jumps every day purely because we love it and i tell myself that i have to carry that with me through these next four years in order to be successful you can't stay dedicated to something if you don't purely love it
1: now, that's really interesting because now that the sport is in the Olympics and it's grown so much in popularity, do you see the media presence as being intrusive to your performance going forward?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, honestly, the past year leading up into the games, the media was ridiculous um, for Lindsay and I. Um, I must say I had a lot of sponsorship on board with me, which I was very thankful for, but The media requirements and the interviews that we had, we would train in the morning for three or four hours. And then honestly, we'd have three hours of interviews in the afternoon, almost every single day or photo shoots or something. And we had, you know, never really had that before. And we're going to talk about my injury a little bit later. But when I blew out my knee in August, five months before Sochi, my mom told me that this was a time to relax and focus on myself because I could deny all these media requests because i solely needed to get healthy again and um so that was kind of a blessing in disguise but we have had to deal with that pressure um, in full force leading up into sochi but yeah definitely now that we're part of the olympic program being at as an event i mean that's that's a barricade in itself that a lot of people don't really realize how hard it is to overcome
1: God, yeah, I can't imagine having reporters, podcast hosts just attacking you for interviews. Um,
0: <laughs> so let's dive into the injury. And also, just so our listeners know, Sarah had an unbelievable run in the 2011-2012 season. How many championships did you win?
2: I won nine of 13 World Cups and podiumed uh, at 12.
0: That's pretty good. So that's 2011-2012, 2013 you win another four let 's see, yeah, and yep. then in August two thousand and thirteen, you blow your knee out during a training run run. What actually happened there? Was it a fall, or did you just tweak it?
2: Oh, um more or less an explosion <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> no, uh, we were training in uh in Germany at the end of August, and I was jumping the best of my life, honestly for me and Um, We were jumping the large hill, which we don't really compete on that much, but um, we love training on it. I love jumping big hills. So we're flying um, about 120 to 135 meters. And um, I was jumping really well, and the wind picked up a little bit, and I didn't adjust my speed accordingly. And I jumped about 15 meters further than I should have. So I landed on basically complete flats, Going, I would say, about 70, 70 to 75 miles an hour. And obviously, my little twig legs couldn't hold me up. And um, my right knee exploded. It, I tore my ACL completely. My MCL came off the bone and damaged 80% of my medial and lateral meniscus.
0: Oh, my gosh. So how does that happen? Shouldn't the courses be able to handle someone that's going to jump further why would you want to adjust your speed that doesn't make sense
2: Hmm. so there's um depending on your level uh there's gates at the top of the hill and it's different bar starts if you've ever seen a ski jump the ski jumpers go out onto a bar and uh, depending on the wind or the snow conditions in the winter um you move up and down Hmm. so that you're landing at what we call k so that's where the the hail starts to flatten out. Obviously, the objective of ski jumping is to jump the furthest, but to jump the furthest um, safely. Mm -hmm. And um, with that headwind, which is an advantage, it creates lift underneath your skis, I didn't move down enough gates. So I had too much speed going into it. And um, honestly, it, it was... A perfect storm, I guess. Uh, I was jumping well, and with the headwind, it's not that I was jumping too well. There's no such thing as that. I just did not move down enough to reduce my feet to land on the slope, which is where you're supposed to land.
0: So carrying that along to continue the story, it's now August, and you have, how long until the Olympics? Like seven months or no, something yeah. like that? Five months. Uh, Five. Oh, five. months. Yeah.
2: A little, a little over five months, I believe. That was August 21st. I flew home on the 23rd and I had an MRI the next day. And then we decided on surgery the next week, the 28th of August. And that week was really, really hard just because I was trying to decide if I had enough time, if I wanted to rush it, if I wanted to do a traditional surgery or kind of do an experimental one in order to get back in time for Sochi. And Um, luckily I had an amazing doctor who looked me in the eye and told me that I could do a hamstring graft and fix up my meniscus, sew my MCL back together and that it was possible to make it to Sochi. And, you know, from that day forward, I was like, all right, this is my goal. My goal is to walk into opening ceremonies. I don't think it's possible to win a gold medal, but, you know, I want to represent Team USA and those next five months were the hardest months of my entire life.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, then that probably makes the, the Olympics that much more rewarding.
2: Yeah. Um, I, the Olympics were amazing. It was it was frustrating because um, I was walking in there as world champion and, you know, in the back of your head, you kind of wish for a miracle, but I kind of had to set that aside and just tell myself that since I made Sochi, that was an accomplishment in itself. So yeah, I was, I have, So many memories and the experience of Sochi and everything that I learned in my rehab process and making the team and competing is going to make me stronger. And I know exactly what I need to do these next four years in order to win which is my ultimate goal
1: yeah it sounds kind of uh, like an awkward feeling you have this great achievement in making the olympics but knowing deep down inside that you're not a hundred percent and maybe you can't perform to the best of your physical ability yet it must make you really look forward to 2018
2: yeah, it was, it was frustrating. I think that's the only way I can sum it up. Um, you know, people came up to me and said, you know, congratulations, awesome job for making it. And of course, I, you know, I'm sm I smile and I'm grateful that they appreciate how hard I worked, but you know, I'm, I'm a fighter and you know, I show up because I want to win. I, I don't really take failure that well. So it was kind of bittersweet for me, but you know, it's, Things happen for a reason. Um, I was able to have bib number one in the Olympics, which was because I hadn't competed in any World Cups. And um, the leader of the World Cup was the last to go. And since I hadn't competed, I didn't have any World Cup points. And so I was given bib number one and was able to open up for those 30 girls competing for the first time ever in the Olympics. And, you know, that was a huge honor in itself. Yeah.
0: This goes to show my right place, right time thing is popping up again. So it 's pretty Absolutely. crazy, um, I want to go to a different side of your mental state uh, after the Olympics. I was reading through one of your blog posts that you actually create. I think it 's through the the USA team um, website. You have your own blog there, which uh, we 'll put on our website for the listeners to check out. But you wrote in it, I have learned so much about myself through the process. I realized in Sochi just how happy my sport makes me and regardless of results I can still walk away from the jumps with a smile on my face the biggest mental challenge for me was the goal to be happy Mm -hmm. and so this seems like a a totally different perspective it's just general happiness of being an athlete of being a human being so can you talk a little bit about how this adversity really made you learn something about yourself
2: yeah um I mean, I kind of touched on it before about the happiness and the passion that you have to have for whatever you do in life and you make goals and you have dreams and every single day you work to achieve that dream and that's that's how I looked at my rehab process. You know, there were so many days where I was literally sitting in the um, physical therapy room crying and, you know, I easily could have just given up and walked away, but Every night when I went to bed and every morning when I woke up, you know, I dreamed of walking into those opening ceremonies, and that's what pushed me every day. And being involved in the world of sport and going to the Olympics and meeting so many amazing athletes and so many amazing people that all had that common passion just made me realize you have to be happy for what you have, and pure happiness is what makes. The world will go round I guess it's it's so important in your everyday life, and um, for me, this path of rehab was finding that happiness and what I need to do to keep my passion for my sport and walk away with a smile on my face.
0: You hear about longevity of athletes and how they get burnt out sometimes, and maybe it's for some reason because they don't have these big challenges that makes them realize exactly what Ooh. they have so I don't want to put any pressure on you but I have a good feeling that you're you're going to be around for the 2018 maybe even the the 2022 Olympics and uh keep it going. You just seem so passionate even more than you were before the Olympics.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's crazy cuz I trained I was in the gym about 6 hours a day, you know, whether I was icing or doing yoga or pilates or rehabbing or strength anything that contributed to my rehab process and Sochi was over and I had told my coaches, you know, I probably won't jump the rest of the winter season because my knee was really not good. Um, in Sochi, I actually had another surgery after, but I was more dedicated and I wanted to be back in the gym. I wanted to get strong again. I wanted to go jump immediately after I wasn't burnt out to any extent. So it just shows that having that hard work pay off and be able to jump and the feeling of flying is something that I love and, um, (laughs) I will be enjoying it for years to come.
1: Very neat. So, Sarah, one question that is consistent across all of our interviews is we like to ask you for a gear recommendation. And as we mentioned with Nick, and I'll say to you as well, most likely our listeners are not ski jumpers, Um, (laughs) so don't recommend them a pair of big plank skis, but you do do a lot of training, so I'd like you to recommend our listeners one piece of gear.
2: Yeah, I mean, unless you're going to ski some powder, our skis are not (laughs) that optimal for anything else besides (laughs) flying. Um, Yeah, I'm a runner, actually. My mom's a runner, so um, I really like the Nike Lunar Glide 4s. That's what I usually train in and run in. And so I, you know, I would highly recommend those for, you know, people in the gym or you know getting out and staying active.
1: Very cool. Yeah, Russell and I are, are runners
0: ourselves. Russell's been slacking lately. Yeah, <laughs> I just started running again, and my calves are like been killing me. <laughs> I like can't even go up and down stairs. It's pathetic. But
1: mountain meister. Right <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: Seriously, but I, I'm gonna get back into it. We've we had some uh, ultra marathoners on that run. That's- over a hundred miles straight in the wilderness. And it just, it makes me feel so bad about myself. But um, that's that. Oh, she did an ultra marathon.
2: She did a hundred or um, back wow. in, I think it was 2006. I want to say, yeah, it, it took her, I think it was 28 hours or 24. Oh my hours.
1: gosh. It's so impressive. I'll tell you what, you know, Russell, you just made me think of something. If there's one thing that we do on this show, it's, We provide the inspirational pieces, but we will also make you feel so bad about what (laughs) you're currently doing. Not you, Sarah, obviously, because you're our guest. But, boy, Russell and I feel like, wow, if that person can run 100 miles, what are we doing sitting here hosting a podcast?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And since we have you on, too, to wrap this whole thing up, what piece of advice would you give for our listeners to go for that goal that they're really achieving in their life? Hmm.
2: For me, uh, yeah, so make that goal, make an achievable goal, and then just remind yourself every day that every little thing that you do um, will add up to reach and accomplish that goal. Um, although you you will have setbacks, but you can't let those setbacks overcome and take over and destroy your dreams because that's what's going to make you stronger. You're going to have setbacks, but you've just got to persevere and the feeling of accomplishing that goal or that dream will be forever worth it. So keep working towards it. And I mean, it sounds so cliche, but just never give up. I mean,
0: it sounds cliche, but it's really not. And I actually read this book called The Slight Edge and Ben's going to crack up right now. <laughs> yeah, because a great
1: book, it,
0: it is a good book. And basically in the book, it's telling you Everything you do, it's either working for or against you. And so you can think about it two ways. You can think, if I'm not doing what I need to be doing to go to my goal, I'm not going to get there. But you can also think, I'm almost going backwards. Mm -hmm. Again, thanks for the great piece of advice, and we're really glad that you joined us on the show today. For our listeners out there, you can find any resources that we talked about, the gear recommendation. Sarah's blog and, uh, some other little the visa commercial. Oh, the coolest
1: thing ever. If our listeners aren't aware, Sarah was in this awesome visa commercial before the Olympics, it's, uh, Amelia Earhart talking in the background and then Sarah begins to fly herself, which is pretty
0: cool off of a ski jump, not regular flying. And then Morgan Freeman <laughs> at the end. So oh, he was, yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here and talk about it.
0: Meister
1: fans, thanks for listening to Sarah Hendrickson's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't seen that Visa commercial where they're comparing Amelia Earhart to Sarah, go ahead and check that out. It'll be on her Meister profile page on our website. Russell, who do we have
0: the joy of talking to next time on Mountain Meister? Next time we have John Kudrowski on the show. We're gonna dive even deeper than a Dateline story. And that isn't completely random. He actually was on an episode on Dateline. Really intense story. It has to do with the biggest mountain in the world and death. Check it out then.